Chapter sixty four of the Junior Classics, Volume eight Animal and Nature Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Junior Classics, Volume eight Animal and Nature Stories by William Patton. Chapter sixty four a ride with a mad horse in a freight car by w h h murray it was at the battle of malvern hill a battle where the carnage was more frightful as it seems to me than in any this side of the alleghanies during the whole war that my story must begin i was then serving as major in the blank massachusetts regiment the old blank as we used to call it and a bloody time the boys had of it too about two p.m. we had been sent out to skirmish along the edge of the wood in which, as our generals suspected, the rebs lay massing for a charge across the slope, upon the crest of which our army was posted. We had barely entered the underbrush when we met the heavy formations of Magruder in the very act of charging. Of course, our thin line of skirmishers was no impediment to those onrushing masses. They were on us and over us before we could get out of the way. I do not think that half of those running, screaming masses of men ever knew that they had passed over the remnants of as plucky a regiment as ever came out of the old Bay State. But many of the boys had good reason to remember that afternoon at the base of Malvern Hill, and I among the number, for when the last line of rebs had passed over me, I was left among the bushes, with the breath nearly trampled out of me, and an ugly bayonet gash through my thigh. A mighty little consolation it for me, at that moment to see the fellow who ran me through lying stark dead at my side with a bullet hole in his head his shock of coarse black hair matted with blood and his stony eyes looking into mine well i bandaged up my limb the best i might and started to crawl away for our batteries had opened and the grape and canister that came hurtling down the slope passed but a few feet over my head it was slow and painful work as you can imagine but at last, by dint of perseverance, I had dragged myself away to the left of the direct range of the batteries, and, creeping to the verge of the wood, looked off over the green slope. I understood by the crash and roar of the guns, the yells and cheers of the men, and that hoarse murmur which those who have been in battle know, but which I cannot describe in words, that there was hot work going on out there, but never have I seen, no, not in that three days' desperate melee in the wilderness, nor at that terrific repulse we had at Cold Harbour, such absolute slaughter as I saw that afternoon on the green slope of Malvern Hill. The guns of the entire army were massed on the crest, and thirty thousand of our infantry lay, musket in hand, in front. For eight hundred yards the hill sank in easy declension, to the wood and across this smooth expanse the rebs must charge to reach our lines it was nothing short of downright insanity to order men to charge that hill and so his generals told lee but he would not listen to reason that day and so he sent regiment after regiment and brigade after brigade and division after division to certain death talk about grant's disregard of human life his effort at cold harbour and i ought to know for i got a miney in my shoulder that day was hopeful and easy work to what lee laid on hills and magruder's divisions at malvern 
It was at the close of the second charge when the yelling mass reeled back from before the blaze of those sixty guns and thirty thousand rifles, even as they began to break and fly backward toward the woods, that I saw from the spot where I lay a riderless horse break out of the confused and flying mass, and, with mane and tail erect and spreading nostril, come dashing obliquely down the slope. Over fallen steeds and heaps of the dead she leaped, with a motion as airy as that of the flying fox, when, fresh and unjaded, he leads away from the hounds, whose sudden cry has broken him off from hunting mice amid the bogs of the meadow. So this riderless horse came bolting along. Now from my earliest boyhood I have had what horsemen call a weakness for horses. Only give me a colt of wild irregular temper and fierce blood to tame, and I am perfectly happy. Never did lash of mine, singing with cruel sound through the air, fall on such a colt's soft hide. Never did yell or kick send his hot blood from heart to head, deluging his sensitive brain with fiery currents, driving him into frenzy or binding him with fear. But touches, soft and gentle as a woman's, caressing words and oats given from the open palm, and unfailing kindness were the means I used to subjugate him. Sweet subjugation, both to him who subdues and to him who yields. The wild, unmannerly, and unmanageable colt, the fear of horsemen the country round, finding in you not an enemy, but a friend, receiving his daily food from you, and all those little nothings which go as far with a horse as a woman, to win and retain affection, grows to look upon you as his protector and friend, and testifies in countless ways his fondness for you. So when I saw this horse, with action so free and motion so graceful, amid that storm of bullets, my heart involuntarily went out to her, and my feelings rose higher and higher at every leap she took from amid the whirlwind of fire and lead. And as she plunged at last over a little hillock out of range, and came careering towards me, as only a riderless horse might come, her head flung wildly from side to side, her nostrils widely spread, her flank and shoulders flecked with foam, her eye dilating. I forgot my wound, and all the wild roar of battle, and, lifting myself involuntarily to a sitting posture as she swept grandly by, gave her a ringing cheer. Perhaps in the sound of a human voice of happy mood amid the awful din, she recognised a resemblance to the voice of him whose blood moistened her shoulders, and was even yet dripping from saddle and housings. Be that as it may, no sooner had my voice sounded than she flung her head with a proud upward movement into the air, swerved sharply to the left, neighed as she might to a master at morning from her stall, and came trotting directly up to where I lay, and, pausing, looked down upon me as it were in compassion. I spoke again, and stretched out my hand caressingly. She pricked her ears, took a step forward, and lowered her nose until it came in contact with my palm. Never did I fondle anything more tenderly. Never did I see an animal which seemed to so court and appreciate human tenderness as that beautiful mare. I say beautiful. No other word might describe her. Never will her image fade from my memory while memory lasts. In weight she might have turned, when well conditioned, 950 pounds. In colour she was a dark chestnut, with a velvety depth and soft look about the hair indescribably rich and elegant. Many a time have I heard ladies dispute the shade and hue of her plush-like coat, 
as they ran their white, jewelled fingers through her silken hair. Her body was round in the barrel and perfectly symmetrical. She was wide in the haunches without projection of the hip bones upon which the shorter ribs seemed to lap. High in the withers as she was, the line of her back and neck perfectly curved, while her deep oblique shoulders and long thick forearm, ridgy with swelling sinews, suggested the perfection of stride and power. Her knees across the pan were wide, the cannon-bone below them short and thin, the pastons long and sloping, her hoofs round, dark, shiny, and well set on. Her mane was a shade darker than her coat, fine and thin, as a thoroughbred's always is whose blood is without taint or cross. Her ear was thin, sharply pointed, delicately curved, nearly black around the borders, and as tremulous as the leaves of an aspen. Her neck rose from the withers to the head in perfect curvature, hard, devoid of fat, and well cut up under the chops. Her nostrils were full, very full, and thin almost as parchment. The eyes from which tears might fall of fire-flash were well brought out, soft as a gazelle's, almost human in their intelligence, while over the small bony head, over neck and shoulders, yea, over the whole body and clean down to the hoofs, the veins stood out as if the skin were but tissue paper against which the warm blood pressed and which it might at any moment burst asunder. A perfect animal, I said to myself as I lay looking her over, an animal which might have been born from the wind and the sunshine, so cheerful and so swift she seems, an animal which a man would present as his choicest gift to the woman he loved, and yet one which that woman, wife or lady-love, would give him to ride when honour and life depended on bottom and speed. All that afternoon the beautiful mare stood over me, while away to the right of us the horse-tide of battle flowed and ebbed. What charm, what delusion of memory held her there? Was my face to her as the face of her dead master, sleeping a sleep from which not even the wildest roar of battle, no, nor her cheerful neigh that morning, would ever wake him? Or is there in animals some instinct answering to our intuition, only more potent, which tells them whom to trust and whom to avoid? I know not, and yet some such sense they may have. They must have, or else why should this mare so fearlessly attach herself to me? By what process of reason or instinct I know not, but there she chose me for her master, and when some of my men at dusk came searching and found me, and laying me on a stretcher started toward our lines, the mare, uncompelled, of her own free will, followed at my side, and all through that stormy night of wind and rain, as my men struggled along through the mud and mire toward Harrison's landing, the mare followed, and ever after, until she died, was with me, and was mine, and I, so far as man might be, was hers. I named her Gulnare. As quickly as my wound permitted, I was transported to Washington, whither I took the mare with me. Her fondness for me grew daily, and soon became so marked as to cause universal comment. I had her boarded while in Washington, at the corner of Blank Street and Blank Avenue. The groom had instructions to lead her around to the window against which was my bed, at the hospital, twice every day, so that by opening the sash I might reach out my hand and pet her. But the second day, no sooner had she reached the street, than she broke suddenly from the groom and dashed away at full speed. 
I was lying, bolstered up in bed, reading, when I heard the rush of flying feet, and in an instant, with a loud, joyful neigh, she checked herself in front of my window. And when the nurse lifted the sash, the beautiful creature thrust her head through the aperture, and rubbed her nose against my shoulder like a dog. I am not ashamed to say that I put both my arms around her neck, and burying my face in her silken mane, kissed her again and again. Wounded, weak, and away from home, with only strangers to wait upon me, and scant service at that, the affection of this lovely creature for me, so tender and touching, seemed almost human. And my heart went out to her beyond any power of expression, as to the only being of all the thousands around me who thought of me and loved me. Shortly after her appearance at my window, the groom, who had divined where he should find her, came into the yard. But she would not allow him to come near her, much less touch her. If he tried to approach, she would lash out at him with her heels most spitefully, and then, laying back her ears and opening her mouth savagely, would make a short dash at him, and, as the terrified African disappeared round the corner of the hospital, she would wheel, and with a face bright as a happy child's, come trotting to the window for me to pet her. I shouted to the groom to go back to the stable, for I had no doubt but that she would return to her stall when I closed the window. Rejoiced at the permission, he departed. After some thirty minutes, the last ten of which she was standing with her slim, delicate head in my lap, while I braided her foretop and combed out her silken mane, I lifted her head and, patting her softly on either cheek, told her that she must go. I gently pushed her head out of the window and closed it, and then, holding up my hand with the palm turned towards her, charged her, making the appropriate motion, to go away right straight back to her stable. For a moment she stood looking steadily at me, with an indescribable expression of hesitation and surprise in her clear, liquid eyes, and then, turning lingeringly, walked slowly out of the yard. Twice a day for nearly a month, while I lay in the hospital, did Gulnare visit me. At the appointed hour the groom would slip her headstall, and, without a word of command, she would dart out of the stable, and with her long leopard-like cloak go sweeping down the street and come dashing into the hospital yard, checking herself with the same glad neigh at my window. Nor did she ever once fail, at the closing of the sash, to return directly to her stall. The groom informed me that every morning and evening, when the hour of her visit drew near, she would begin to chafe and worry, and by pawing and pulling at the halter, advertise him that it was time for her to be released. But of all exhibitions of happiness, either by beast or man, hers was the most positive on that afternoon, when, racing into the yard, she found me leaning on a crutch outside the hospital building. The whole corps of nurses came to the doors, and all the poor fellows that could move themselves, for Gulnare had become a universal favourite, and the boys looked for her daily visits nearly, if not quite, as ardently as I did, crawled to the windows to see her. What gladness was expressed in every movement! She would come prancing toward me, head and tail erect, and, pausing, rub her head against my shoulder, while I patted her glossy neck. Then suddenly, with a sidewise spring, she would break away, and with her long tail elevated, until her magnificent brush, fine and silken as the golden hair of a blonde, fell in a great spray on either flank, and her head curved to its proudest arch, pace around me with that high action and springing step peculiar to the thoroughbred. 
then like a flash dropping her brush and laying back her ears and stretching her nose straight out she would speed away with that quick nervous low-lying action which marks the rush of racers then side by side and nose to nose lapping each other with the roar of cheers on either hand and along the seats above them they come straining up the home stretch returning from one of these arrowy flights she would come curvetting back now pacing sidewise as on a parade now dashing her hind feet high into the air and anon vaulting up and springing through the air with legs well under her as if in the act of taking a five-barred gate and finally would approach and stand happy in her reward my caress the war at last was over gulner and i were at the death with sheridan at the five forks together we had shared the pageant at richmond and washington and never had i seen her in better spirits than on that day at the capitol it was a sight indeed to see her as she came down pennsylvania avenue if the triumphant procession had been all in her honour and mine she could not have moved with greater grace and pride with dilating eye and tremulous ear ceaselessly champing her bit her heated blood bringing out the magnificent lacework of veins over her entire body now and then pausing and with a snort gathering herself back upon her haunches as for a mighty leap when she shook the froth from her bits she moved with a high prancing step down the magnificent street the admired of all beholders cheer after cheer was given huzzah after huzzah rang out over her head from roofs and balcony bouquet after bouquet was launched by fair and enthusiastic admirers before her and yet amid the crash and swell of music the cheering and tumult so gentle and manageable was she that though i could feel her frame creep and tremble under me as she moved through that whirlwind of excitement no check or curb was needed and the bridle lines the same she wore when she came to me at malvern hill lay unlifted on the pommel of the saddle never before had i seen her so grandly herself never before had the fire and energy the grace and gentleness of her blood so revealed themselves this was the day and the event she needed and all the royalty of her ancestral breed a race of equine kings flowing out without taint or cross from him that was the pride and wealth of the whole tribe of desert rangers expressed itself in her i need not say that i shared her mood i sympathized in her every step i entered into all her royal humours i patted her neck and spoke loving and cheerful words to her i called her my beauty my pride my pet and did she not understand me every word else why that listening ear turned back to catch my softest whisper why the responsive quiver through the frame and the low happy neigh well i exclaimed as i leaped from her back at the close of the review alas that words spoken in lightest mood should portend so much well gunner if you should die your life has had its triumph the nation itself through its admiring capital has paid tribute to your beauty and death can never rob you of your fame and i patted her moist neck and foam-flecked shoulders while the grooms were busy with head and loins that night our brigade made its bivouac just over long bridge almost on the identical spot where four years before i had camped my company of three months volunteers with what experiences of march and battle were those four years filled for three of these years gulner had been my constant companion with me she had shared my tent and not rarely my rations 
for in appetite she was truly human, and my steward always counted her as one of our mess. Twice she had been wounded, once at Fredericksburg, through the thigh, and once at Cold Harbor, where a piece of shell tore away a part of her scalp. So completely did it stun her that for some moments I thought her dead, but to my great joy she shortly recovered her senses. I had the wound carefully dressed by our brigade surgeon, from whose care she came in a month, with the edges of the wound so nicely united that the eye could with difficulty detect the scar. This night, as usual, she lay at my side, her head almost touching mine. Never before, unless when on a raid and in face of the enemy, had I seen her so uneasy. Her movements during the night compelled wakefulness on my part. The sky was cloudless, and in the dim light I lay and watched her. Now she would stretch herself at full length and rub her head on the ground. Then she would start up and, sitting on her haunches like a dog, lift one foreleg and paw her neck and ears. Anon she would rise to her feet and shake herself, walk off a few rods, return and lie down again by my side. I did not know what to make of it, unless the excitement of the day had been too much for her sensitive nerves. I spoke to her kindly and petted her. In response she would rub her nose against me and lick my hand with her tongue, a peculiar habit of hers, like a dog. As I was passing my hand over her head, I discovered that it was hot, and the thought of the old wound flashed into my mind, with a momentary fear that something might be wrong about her brain. But after thinking it over, I dismissed it as incredible. Still, I was alarmed. I knew that something was amiss, and I rejoiced at the thought that I should soon be at home, where she could have quiet and, if need be, the best of nursing. At length the morning dawned, and the mare and I took our last meal together on southern soil, the last we ever took together. The brigade was formed in line for the last time, and as I rode down the front to review the boys, she moved with all her old battle grace and power. Only now and then, by a shake of the head, was I reminded of her actions during the night. I said a few words of farewell to the men whom I had led so often to battle, with whom I had shared perils not a few, and by whom, as I had reason to think, I was loved, and then gave, with a voice slightly unsteady, the last order they would ever receive from me. Brigade, attention! Ready to break ranks! Break ranks! The order was obeyed, but ere they scattered, moved by a common impulse, they gave first three cheers for me, and then, with the same heartiness, and even more power, three cheers for Gulnare. And she, standing there, looking with her bright, cheerful countenance full at the men, pouring with her forefeet alternately the ground, seemed to understand the compliment, for no sooner had the cheering died away than she arched her neck to its proudest curve, lifted her thin, delicate head into the air, and gave a short, joyful neigh. My arrangements for transporting her had been made by a friend the day before. A large, roomy car had been secured, its floor strewn with bright, clean straw, a bucket and a bag of oats provided, and everything done for her comfort. The car was to be attached to the through express, in consideration of fifty dollars extra, which I gladly paid, because of the greater rapidity with which it enabled me to make my journey. As the brigade broke up into groups, I glanced at my watch and saw that I had barely time to reach the cars before they started. I shook the reins upon her neck, and with a plunge startled at the energy of my signal, away she flew. What a stride she had! What an elastic spring! 
She touched and left the earth as if her limbs were of spiral wire. When I reached the car, my friend was standing in front of it. The gangplank was ready. I leaped from the saddle and, running up the plank into the car, whistled to her, and she, timid and hesitating, yet unwilling to be separated from me, crept slowly and cautiously up the steep incline and stood beside me. Inside I found a complete suit of flannel clothes with a blanket and, better than all, a lunch basket. My friend explained that he had bought the clothes as he came down to the depot, thinking, as he said, that they would be much better than your regimentals, and suggested that I doff the one and don the other. To this I assented the more readily as I reflected that I would have to pass one night at least in the car, with no better bed than the straw under my feet. I had barely time to undress before the cars were coupled and started. I tossed the clothes to my friend with the injunction to pack them in my trunk and express them on to me, and I waved him my adieu. I arrayed myself in the nice, cool flannel and looked around. The thoughtfulness of my friend had anticipated every want. An old cane-seated chair stood in one corner. The lunch-basket was large and well supplied. Amid the oats I found a dozen oranges, some bananas, and a package of real Havana cigars. How I called down blessings on his thoughtful head as I took the chair and, lighting one of the fine-flavoured figaros, gazed out on the fields past which we were gliding, yet wet with morning dew. As I sat dreamily admiring the beauty before me, Gulnare came and, resting her head upon my shoulder, seemed to share my mood. As I stroked her fine-haired, satin-like nose, recollection quickened, and memories of our companionship in perils thronged into my mind. I rode again that midnight ride to Knoxville, when Burnside lay entrenched, desperately holding his own, waiting for news from Chattanooga, of which I was the bearer, chosen by Grant himself because of the reputation of my mare. What riding that was! We started ten riders of us in all, each with the same message. I parted company the first hour out, with all save one, an iron-grey stallion of messenger blood. Jack Murdoch rode him, who learned his horsemanship from buffalo and Indian hunting on the plains. Not a bad school to graduate from. Ten miles out of Knoxville, the grey, his flanks dripping with wood, plunged up abreast of the mare's shoulders and fell dead. And Gulnare and I passed through the lines alone. I had ridden the terrible race without whip or spur. With what scenes of blood and flight she would ever be associated. And then I thought of home, unvisited for four long years. That home I left a stripling, but to which I was returning a bronze and brawny man. I thought of mother and Bob, how they would admire her, of old Ben, the family groom, and of that one who shall be nameless, whose picture I had so often shown to Gulnare as the likeness of her future mistress. Had they not all heard of her, my beautiful mare, she who came to me from the smoke and whirlwind, my battle-gift? How they would pat her soft, smooth sides, and tie her mane with ribbons, and feed her with all sweet things from open and caressing palm. And then I thought of one who might come after her to bear her name, and repeat at least some portion of her beauty, a horse honoured and renowned the country through, because of the transmission of the mother's fame. About three o'clock in the afternoon a change came over Gulnare. I had fallen asleep on the straw, and she had come and awakened me with a touch of her nose. The moment I started up I saw that something was the matter. Her eyes were dull and heavy. Never before had I seen the light go out of them. 
The rocking of the car, as it went jumping and vibrating along, seemed to irritate the car. Touching it, I found that the skin over the brain was hot as fire. Her breathing grew rapidly louder and louder. Each breath was drawn with a kind of gasping effort. The lids with their silken fringe drooped wearily over the lustreless eyes. The head sank lower and lower, until the nose almost touched the floor. The ears, naturally so lively and erect, hung limply and widely apart. The body was cold and senseless. A pinch elicited no motion. Even my voice was at last unheeded. To word and touch there came, for the first time in all our intercourse, no response. I knew as the symptoms spread what was the matter. The signs bore all one way. She was in the first stages of phrenitis, or inflammation of the brain. In other words, my beautiful mare was going mad. I was well versed in the anatomy of the horse. Loving horses from my very childhood, there was little in veterinary practice with which I was not familiar. Instinctively, as soon as the symptoms had developed themselves, and I saw under what frightful disorder Gulnare was labouring, I put my hand into my pocket for my knife, in order to cut open a vein. There was no knife there. Friends, I have met with many surprises. More than once in battle and scout have I been nigh death. But never did my blood desert my veins and settle so around the heart. Never did such a sickening sensation possess me, as when, standing in that car with my beautiful mare before me, marked with those horrible symptoms, I made that discovery. My knife, my sword, my pistols even, were with my suit in the care of my friend, two hundred miles away. Hastily, and with trembling fingers, I searched my clothes, the lunch-basket, my linen. Not even a pin could I find. I shoved open the sliding door, and swung my hat and shouted, hoping to attract some brakeman's attention. The train was thundering along at full speed, and no one saw or heard me. I knew her stupor would not last long. A slight quivering of the lip, an occasional spasm running through the frame, told me too plainly that the stage of frenzy would soon begin. "'My God!' I exclaimed in despair as I shut the door and turned toward her. "'Must I see you die, Gulnare, when the opening of a vein would save you? "'Have you borne me, my pet, through all these years of peril, "'the icy chill of winter, the heat and torment of summer, "'and all the thronging dangers of a hundred bloody battles, "'only to die torn by fierce agonies when so near a peaceful home?' But little time was given me to mourn. My life was soon to be in peril, and I must summon up the utmost power of eye and limb to escape the violence of my frenzied mare. Did you ever see a mad horse when his madness is upon him? Take your stand with me in that car, and you shall see what suffering a dumb creature can endure before it dies. In no malady does a horse suffer more than in phrenitis or inflammation of the brain. Possibly in severe cases of colic, Probably in rabies in its fiercest form, the pain is equally intense. These three are the most agonizing of all the diseases to which the noblest of animals is exposed. Had my pistols been with me, I should then and there, with whatever strength heaven granted, have taken my companion's life, that she might be spared the suffering which was so soon to rack and wring her sensitive frame. A horse laboring under an attack of phrenitis is as violent as a horse can be. He is not ferocious as is one in a fit of rabies. He may kill his master, but he does it without design. There is in him no desire of mischief for its own sake, 
no cruel cunning, no stratagem and malice. A rabid horse is conscious in every act and motion. He recognizes the man he destroys. There is in him an insane desire to kill. Not so with a frenetic horse. He is unconscious in his violence. He sees and recognizes no one. There is no method of purpose in his madness. He kills without knowing it. I knew what was coming. I could not jump out. That would be certain death. I must abide in the car and take my chance of life. The car was fortunately high, long, and roomy. I took my position in front of my horse, watchful and ready to spring. Suddenly, her lids, which had been closed, came open with a snap, as if an electric shock had passed through her, and the eyes, wild in their brightness, stared directly at me. And what eyes they were! The membrane grew red and redder, until it was of the colour of blood, standing out in frightful contrast with the transparency of the cornea. The pupil gradually dilated until it seemed about to burst out of the socket. The nostrils, which had been sunken and motionless, quivered, swelled, and glowed. The respiration became short, quick, and gasping. The limp and dripping ears stiffened and stood erect, pricked sharply forward as if to catch the slightest sound. Spasms, as the car swerved and vibrated, ran along her frame. More horrid than all, the lips slowly contracted, and the white, sharp-edged teeth stood uncovered, giving an indescribable look of ferocity to the partially opened mouth. The car suddenly reeled as it dashed around a curve, swaying her almost off her feet, and as a contortion shook her, she recovered herself and reared upward as high as the car permitted, plunging directly at me. I was expecting the movement and dodged. Then followed exhibitions of pain, which I pray God I may never see again. Time and again did she dash herself upon the floor, and roll over and over, lashing out with her feet in all directions. Pausing a moment, she would stretch her body to its extreme length, and, lying upon her side, pound the floor with her head, as if it were a maul. Then, like a flash, she would leap to her feet, and whirl round and round, until from very giddiness she would stagger and fall. She would lay hold of the straw beneath her teeth, and shake it as a dog shakes a struggling woodchuck. Then, dashing it from her mouth, she would seize hold of her own sides and rend herself. Springing up, she would rush against the end of the car, falling all in a heap from the violence of the concussion. For some fifteen minutes without intermission the frenzy lasted. I was nearly exhausted. My efforts to avoid her mad rushes, the terrible tension of my nervous system produced by the spectacle of such exquisite and prolonged suffering, were weakening me beyond what I should have thought it possible an hour before for anything to weaken me. In fact, I felt my strength leaving me. A terror such as I had never yet felt was taking possession of my mind. I sickened at the sight before me, and at the thought of agonies yet to come. My God, I exclaimed, must I be killed by my own horse in this miserable car? Even as I spoke, the end came. The mare raised herself until her shoulders touched the roof, then dashed her body upon the floor with a violence which threatened the stout frame beneath her. I leaned, panting and exhausted, against the side of the car. Gulnare did not stir. She lay motionless, her breath coming and going in lessening respirations. I tottered toward her, and as I stood above her, my ear detected a low, gurgling sound. I cannot describe the feeling that followed. Joy and grief contended within me. I knew the meaning of that sound. 
Gulnare, in her frenzied violence, had broken a blood vessel, and was bleeding internally. Pain and life were passing away together. I knelt down by her side. I laid my head upon her shoulders and sobbed aloud. Her body moved a little beneath me. I crawled forward and lifted her beautiful head into my lap. Oh, for one more sign of recognition before she died. I smoothed the tangled masses of her mane. I wiped, with a fragment of my coat, torn in the struggle, the blood which oozed from her nostril. I called her by name. My desire was granted. In a moment, Gulnare opened her eyes. The redness of frenzy had passed out of them. She saw and recognized me. I spoke again. Her eye lighted a moment with the old and intelligent look of love. Her ear moved. Her nostril quivered slightly as she strove to neigh. The effort was in vain. Her love was greater than her strength. She moved her head a little, as if she would be nearer me, looked once more with her clear eyes into my face, breathed a long breath, straightened her shapely limbs, and died. And there, holding the head of my dead mare in my lap, while the great warm tears fell one after another down my cheeks, I sat until the sun went down, the shadows darkened in the car, and night drew her mantle, coloured like my grief, over the world. End of chapter 64